This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Dr. Ron DeHaven, President of DeHaven Veterinary Solutions and former administrator of the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Rhonda Haven. Next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Livestock groups are lobbying Congress to fund a national vaccine bank to protect the nation's herds from a potential outbreak of foot and mouth disease. Dr. Rhonda Haven says unlike highly pathogenic avid influenza, PID V, or even mad cow disease, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease could devastate the multi-billion dollar livestock industry in the U.S. FMD uh, affects so many different species, it would have broad-ranging impact across all of animal agriculture in the U.S. were we to uh, get the disease. What would be the implications of FMD found in one species of animal in the U.S.? Well, first of all, as we found with BSE in December of 2003, overnight we lost $4.8 billion in export of, of beef, and that was just affecting the one species of animal. So I think we would see a similar response were we to have foot and mouth disease in the U.S. where we would overnight lose billions of dollars in export markets. In the past, the reason that stamping out was the preferred strategy was it was thought that that would be the quickest way to recover those markets by eliminating any animals that have the disease or had been exposed to it you could very quickly assure trading partners that we had eliminated the the virus from this country. But as we found out with uh, foot and mouth disease in the UK in 2001, and uh, simultaneously a a foot and mouth disease outbreak in Uruguay in 2001, vaccination actually worked much faster and at a lot lower expense than the stamping out strategy. So I think it was largely... That experience in 2001 as we watched the fires burn in in the UK as they were burning carcasses that um, that's just not acceptable from a from an economic standpoint from a public perception standpoint and much of the stigma that has been attached with vaccination for foot and mouth disease has since been dispelled so I think we're in a better place now than we were back then. So the urgency is from now, we've heard from the Cattlemen's Beef Association, we've heard from the Pork Producers uh, Council, there are a number who are calling on Congress to come up with a vaccine bank to be offshore in the event uh, of this occurrence. Again, back to a question I've asked, why the urgency of now, especially given the size of the livestock industry and the other challenges that we face? I think, Jeff, it's because we realize that we could have foot and mouth disease in this country tomorrow. 
We have been so fortunate that we haven't had the disease in the U.S. since 1929, and a lot of that is probably just pure blind luck that it hasn't found its way into the United States. So the urgency is we don't know if we're going to potentially get the disease in the U.S. tomorrow, next week, next month, or another 10, 20, 30 years from now. We just don't know. But we do know that if we do get the disease uh, the economic impact, particularly from a trade standpoint, is going to be huge. And with the new strategy um, of vaccination, uh, in order to more quickly contain and eventually eliminate, we, we realize we just don't have uh, the vaccine bank that we need uh, to deal with even a moderate size outbreak. So even influenza could come in on migratory birds. Uh, we found that uh, BSE was largely from livestock feed. So how does how would FMD, how would it penetrate our borders? How could it get here? Any number of ways. Um, the big concern is that someone is going to be inadvertently bringing an animal or more likely an animal product, say meat, uh, from an FMD country uh, that would be legally prohibited from coming into the country. But we all know with tens of thousands of international travelers coming into this country every day, the potential for one of them to be bringing uh, a piece of meat uh, from their home country uh, because they can't get it in the U.S., the, the, the chance is just too great. With 9-11 came the realization that uh, it could be intentionally introduced. Uh, this would be a real way to uh, wreak economic havoc on the U.S. by intentionally introducing a disease like foot and mouth disease. So um, we, we have to be aware of that, and hence the big concern on the part of Department of Homeland Security over a bioagricultural threat. How many different strains of FMD are there? So there are seven different types, as they're called, seven different types of the virus, and with each type, there's multiple subtypes. So um, I've heard the number anywhere from 30 to 65 different uh, types and subtypes of the virus. What makes it challenging in terms of a vaccine bank is a vaccine against one of those types won't provide protection against the other types. And so one of the challenges with this vaccine bank is you have to have in the bank a vaccine for all of the potential or at least likely types and subtypes of the virus that might come to the U.S. Let's take a situation that FMD was discovered in a cow-calf operation east of the Mississippi or that FMD was found in a feedlot in Kansas. At that point of discovery, what happens? So what would happen immediately is the imposition of quarantines, stopping the movement um, probably of all livestock in that geographical area. Um, and so not if we found it in a, in a feedlot, certainly a quarantine of that feedlot, but uh, there's going to be a broader area that would be put under quarantine, and it would stop the movement of all livestock um, within that area and imposition of biosecurity measures, um, cleaning and infecting uh, trucks and other equipment that might be moving farm to farm. And then immediately we would have people on site that would start an epidemiological investigation. Where did that virus come from and when did it come and what movement has been out of that location since the disease was introduced and so where might it have spread? And then that potentially leads to other areas that would be quarantined. We would start surveillance testing of 
of uh, animals in that area, uh, etc. And then very quickly, a determination made is, is this something that we can quickly contain and control and perhaps eliminate the virus through uh, stamping out of the infected and exposed animals? Or has it already sped, spread past that point and we need to consider uh, vaccination? So all of those things would start happening very quickly. So if it comes in cattle, can it cross to hogs? Absolutely. Um, and once it's in hogs, it can ca- cross to sheep and and other cloven hoof animals. So, yeah, that's that, that's the real issue. Um, and it can not only spread via people and equipment, uh, particularly when swine are infected, they produce a huge aerosol of the virus. And so it can spread uh, from farm to farm, literally through the air. So animal to animal, but also can become airborne. Correct. Animal to animal, animal to person who gets the virus on their body and or on their boots and then goes to another farm and infects the animals there. You bet. What about the meat that comes from those animals? Totally safe from a human disease standpoint. So one of the good things is, unlike uh, BSE and uh, some strains of high-path avian influenza, foot and mouth disease does not affect uh, people. People don't get sick from, from that virus. The danger with the meat is that it can have the virus, and so as you're moving meat, you're also moving the virus around, so the potential to spread the disease uh, through the meat. So um, the meat itself presents um, no public health hazard, but it certainly is a hazard in terms of a, a fomite, uh, another means of transmitting the disease. Obviously, protecting human health is priority, but then we start to think about the economics of this situation. The downside of this could be phenomenal from day one. Absolutely, it would. Um, The first thing would happen is we would lose export markets overnight, and and so right there is some economic impact. Uh, If you can't export product, uh, then we consume it um, within our own borders domestically, and let's so let's say we all of a sudden lost all of our pork exports, which they're now exporting about 25 plus percent of, of our production. So now you're flooding the U.S. market with pork. Pork prices go down, and and because pork is so cheap now, uh, chicken prices go down, and and it affects the entire industry. Less demand for animal feed, so there virtually would be no component of animal agriculture that wouldn't be impacted by uh, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease. Whether pork or whether beef, you have the processing industry, you have the uh, the downstream of the production cycle that would, I would assume, also be affected. For the consumer, immediately meat prices would go down, but if this is an extended uh, an extended run to be able to eliminate the disease and trying to, to gain market share back, this is an economic loss that could last a while and meat prices ultimately could come back up. And we did see that with a, a little bit with uh, BSE in, in 2003, but no, you're exactly right. So we would see a drop in meat prices across all of the species lines uh, initially. And until we reopen those export markets, uh, that's likely to continue. Once we have contained and eliminated the disease and open up those markets, then hopefully things get back to normal. But that could be anywhere from two months to two years, depending on how quickly we're able to contain and eliminate the disease. Already in our discussion so far, it explains why some livestock organizations here in the U.S. have been concerned about importing meat from countries that have had FMD. Indeed, 
we need to be careful there because um, it, it, to be able to export, you have to import. And so we don't want to impose any import requirements in the U.S. on meat, meat products coming from other countries without good scientific justification. Um, if we don't treat other countries fairly, if we should get foot and mouth disease in the U.S., then they're not likely to treat us fairly either. So any of those restrictions um, need to be and are based on good science. What does the risk analysis say in terms of the likelihood of product from country X um, harboring a disease like, like foot and mouth disease? So um, there is um, an abundance of caution in our trade policy, and rightly so. We have a lot at stake, uh, but at the same time, uh, we have to treat others fairly in anticipation that uh, we would want them to treat us fairly if we were similarly situated at some point in the future. For someone who's not uh, a livestock producer or a veterinarian, you're sitting on the sidelines and you're hearing of the enormity of the potential downfall of this disease. Some might say, well, why don't you just go ahead and vaccinate them anyway? What's the downside of that? Well, you know, we started off talking about all of the different types and subtypes of foot and mouth disease virus and so to undertake uh, that kind of vaccination program would be a huge undertaking. And from a practical standpoint, there's no way we could vaccinate against all of the potential strains of the virus that we might ultimately find in the U.S. And then just the sheer cost of producing and administering that vaccination would be huge. So it's one of those things from a practical standpoint, uh, we just can't do it either from a economic or a manpower standpoint. I want to end up talking about the vaccine bank in detail as how you and other veterinarians see this working, but I want to take this a step further. So if there is an outbreak, if we were to have pray tell an outbreak somewhere, the fear with the highly pathogenic avian influenza is that it was coming from wild birds to our domestic livestock. But what happens if a strain then goes out into the wildlife? If if it's found in a feedlot, it's found in a cow-calf operation, and deer are infected with this, how in the world, from from a national security standpoint, do you handle a situation like that? Uh, I think we're fortunate and and found out in the UK as as an example that um, the virus really doesn't sustain itself well in wildlife. Certainly, um, cloven-hoofed animals in the wild can get the disease. They are susceptible, um, but um, the infection isn't really maintained or it's not sustained in those wildlife populations, thank goodness. Having said that, um, animals like deer certainly can move the virus from one farm to another farm, um, and, and so that is a, a real concern uh, in the face of an outbreak. Um, but in terms of Sustaining an infection, um, practice, actual experience would suggest that, that that's not a huge threat. I would ask you now to speak on behalf of the livestock industry and speak on behalf of veter- the other veterinarians who are endorsing this proposal before Congress. How much money are you asking for, and in detail, what do you need to be prepared? So the, the ask is for $150 million per year for five years, so a total of $750 million to gear up, create the infrastructure, and then uh, ultimately stockpile the vaccine that we would need. Um, 
and and stockpile um, virtually all of the types and subtypes of the virus that are likely to be uh, introduced into into the U.S. Right now, we do participate in uh, the North American Foot and Mouth Disease Vaccine Bank. It's a partnership with Canada and Mexico, um, but. Um, there is not enough vaccine in that bank to even handle vaccination in a single livestock-dense state. So while we, we, we currently have a vaccine bank, it's, it's um, totally inadequate for uh, our needs under the current, current strategy. So there would be a three-part overall strategy for the vaccine bank. One, you would have in the bank actual vaccine ready to be administered for all of the likely types of uh, and strains of the virus that might be introduced. Then also in the bank, you would have what's called vaccine antigen concentrate, virus antigen concentrate, excuse me. And so what that is, is it's the antigen from which they make the vaccine. It can be stored in large quantities at super low temperatures and have a a shelf life of, of 10, 20, 30 years. So, if we were to have an outbreak, we would have that live vaccine ready to go for the first few days. Within uh, four to seven days, we could take that vaccine antigen concentrate and convert it into vaccine. And so you've got then uh, the, the second phase of the vaccine supply. And then as soon as we identified what the type and subtype was of the virus that was causing the outbreak, then you gear up production and, and start producing vaccine for, for longer-term needs, so a three-part strategy. This $750 million over five years would provide that capacity for all three phases of this um, vaccine response. Must there be a public-private partnership here to act in the event of an outbreak? absolutely critical that we have that uh, public-private partnership. We don't have the capability or the capacity uh, to produce that kind of uh, vaccine or that volume of vaccine anywhere in the government. And in fact, we don't have that capacity even in production facilities, commercial facilities in the U.S. So it not only needs to be a public-private partnership, um, but we think that that partnership should be with an offshore uh, company that uh, could more easily build up that increased capacity and produce the vaccine. And the vaccine production itself is not without risks. Given the current technology that we're using to to produce vaccine, you actually have to produce large quantities of live virulent um, foot and mouth disease virus and the potential for an accidental escape of that virus from a production facility is significant, significant enough that we think the better strategy is let's put it in existing production facilities and increase their capacity to meet our demand. Do you have ideas of where you would establish those production facilities? So I think they already exist. For example, there's a production facility in France. I think there's one in South America. And I'm sure that we would go through an open bid proposal process where companies would bid for that work. So I think where it would be would be determined through that uh, procurement process and taking into account a lot of different factors, uh, such as what is their capacity, what's the likelihood of their being able to gear up to produce our vaccine needs and those kinds of things. So be a number of different factors, but ultimately it's going to be the government buying that vaccine 
from private industry. Dr. DeHaven, we want to thank you very much for being with us on this edition of Open Mic, sir. It is an open mic, and you have an open forum. Well, thank you, Jeff, for this opportunity. I think uh, you are covering what is uh, one of the critical issues that potentially could affect American agriculture in the U.S. So um, I appreciate the opportunity for this, and, and I am so pleased that there is recognition uh, within the administration and uh, and certainly within our livestock industries that foot and mouth disease represents a real threat. I think our new strategy that would rely much more heavily on vaccination and using vaccination earlier in an outbreak is scientifically sound. It's the most humane way of dealing with that uh, potential uh, situation. Um, and uh, I think it's a really good thing that this concern is getting the level of interest in the Congress that it currently is. The next Farm Bill is a perfect vehicle uh, to fund this vaccine bank, and uh, I will certainly do my part to, to try and uh, help that along the way. Again, thank you for keeping this issue in the forefront uh, because I think uh, there's nothing that could potentially have greater impact on American agriculture than this disease. Our thanks to Dr. Ron DeHaven, President the Haven Veterinary Solutions, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.